from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Today's guest is a writer that has taken the genre of noir and redefined it by transcending time periods as well as traditional character archetypes. He's joining me today to discuss his debut novel, Monochrome Noir, which is set in a four-part series. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Jack Wells. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining me. It's uh, 10 a.m. here, but for you, I think it's 9 a.m., right? It is. Yeah, 9 a.m. on a Sunday. So uh, thank you for waking up early on a Sunday morning for a podcast interrogation. (laughs) Oh, not even a problem. So in your bio, it says that you've been writing on and off since grade school and have been penning amateur reviews for movies, novels, and video games but that Monochrome Noir is your first publication of an original story. Correct. What was the catalyst or confluence of events that led you to bring this series of four books into existence? Uh, It started out, actually, interestingly enough, on Goodreads, where a local Salt Lake City author publisher happened to read some of my reviews that I did. And he sent me a private message. This was back in, like... In January of 2019, he sent me a private message saying, hey, we've got a collection of stories coming out called Strange Stories. We like how you write. Do you have anything to contribute? And at the time, I didn't, but I wanted to be included. I'd never um, been a part of a publishing call before. So I thought, hey, let's let's try. You know, so I told him, I said, I've got nothing, but I will come up with something. And that was, I think I had about three weeks before the submission date. So honestly, it was kind of a late night brainstorm session, come up with something last minute to try to get into this publication of weird, strange, pulpy stories. Mm-hmm. So it, it began as a short story? It did. Yeah. And it was, you know, and I think, I don't know about you, but when my mind goes to the concept of pulp, I think the old pulp, noir, you know, detective, detective tales. So that's kind of where I went. And that's kind of what Catalyst was for why this ended up turning into a detective and mystery story. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily something noir wasn't necessarily something you were like neck deep into at the time. You were just kind of uh, adapting to the subject matter. Exactly. And I, I love watching noir. I love reading noir, but I had never attempted to write it. So yeah, it was definitely outside of my wheelhouse for sure. Yeah. 
Well, the the elements that I like about noir are the cynicism, the lone wolf personality, as well as the exposition of the dark, seedy underbelly of society. So which elements drew you in? All of those. I love the fatalism as well. Uh, You also have a lot of gallows, kind of sarcastic humor with noir, and that's always appealed to me. I'm very much a gallows humor, sarcastic kind of guy, so it just it, it resonates. Um, I love the the kind of ambiguity of it all, where the good guys sometimes behave like bad guys. The bad guys have believable motives, and the femme fatale, you never know what the hell she's up to. So all of that just kind of drew me in, because you can go any which way, and the readers kind of should expect it, but maybe also shouldn't. So I don't know. It's, you, have a lot of, you have a lot of room to play, I think, with noir, with the characters especially. Do you kind of prefer, I don't know, for lack of a better word, the kind of classic type of noir? Or do you dig some of the more nihilistic stuff like Romeo is Bleeding? Oh, God, I love that movie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, honestly, I like the classics, but that was kind of the challenge, too, is to take some of those classic elements, and at least for me, to try to bring them kind of into a modern setting. I don't know. I, I love Sin City. I read those graphic novels as a teen and as a young adult, and just you know they were more of a modern telling of noir. I, I don't know. That's just something about the classics that resonates. I mean, there's great modern noir too. I can't lie, and I know we'll talk about that later. But yeah, I'd go with the classics. Yeah. And now you mentioned Goodreads. When I'm on Instagram and I see Bookstagrams, I always see Goodreads, and I've glanced at it casually. I mean, what, what's Goodreads all about exactly, for an author anyway? Well, for an author, honestly, it's a great place to showcase your work for free. Because um, Goodreads, I think they're owned by Amazon now because like everything's owned by Amazon. But back then, I don't think it was. And so it was a good place for people to upload their own stories to try to potentially get an audience for reviews. Because you know, Amazon has their own reviews, but they're a little strict with their reviews. Like you can't really kind of let your personality shine on Amazon reviews. They want it to be short and succinct, you know, and very, very dry. Goodreads, you can say what you want and you can say it for as long as you want. So if you have 40 paragraphs that you want to talk about a book with, then you can do 40 paragraphs. And so, I don't know. I think Goodreads is a better platform for reviews. I think Goodreads is a better platform for indie authors to get their works out there and seen. Um, I know it's not just the only one anymore. There's, hundreds of options now but you know years ago when i started first signed up with goodreads there weren't any other options that was it Mm -hmm. interesting well so redirecting back to your book um the reason the word monochrome is in the title of the book is because the world that the characters exist in is exactly that monochrome and devoid of color so literally existing in a gray area And the classic period for film noir was in the 40s and 50s. And, you know, for the most part back then, the movies were in black and white. So did your monochrome concept have anything to do with that? Did it stem from that or just how exactly did you develop the concept? No, that's exactly right. So, you know, when I got that publishing call, you know, the the entire first night, I just sat there thinking of a concept. And like I said, the, the word pulp takes me back to those films from the 40s and 50s. And they are all in black and white. So, you know, I wanted that aesthetic in my world. But, I mean, books inherently, you're reading them on a, on a white page on black, you know, black font. So they're almost inherently black and white anyways. The only reason we know that they have any color is when we mention color in the narrative. But I thought, like, how cool would it be 
to literally bring the black and white aesthetic of those old movies and to make the world literally a thousand shades of gray, everything's a gray area into the world by taking all color out of the world. And that kind of killed two birds with one stone by letting me have that old timey feel without really having to go back into that era. Because there's already so many good books from that time period. How do you top what's come before you, you don't? So my goal was, okay, let's not try to top what's come before. Let's try to tell it in a completely different way. So let's bring that black and white aesthetic out as if it's really, that's, that's everything that there is. There is no color. It, it is a black and white world. So I don't know. That just something about that just really spoke to me. And I thought that'd be cool to explore, not realizing just how difficult that would be to actually write as a first time author. Interesting. So I guess I would have to say, I don't know if you'd call like old Sherlock Holmes detective stories noir, but that's my experience as far as literary noir. So most of most of my experience is with movies. So you mentioned the books that came before that. Are there any in particular that stand out for you? Well, you've got Raymond Chandler. Uh, he was great. Uh, James Elroy. Not that those are necessarily as old as some of the others that are on the list, but I mean, those those to me stood out quite a bit. Walter Mosley. Um, again, you've got Frank Miller with his Sim City Tales, which are all in black and white, except very, very brief moments of color. So I'd say a couple of those. There's there's a lot of other ones. I can't think of them off the top of my head, maybe because it's a little early in the morning. But, you know, there's yeah, there, there's some classics out there that you just I don't know. You just can't top. Yeah. So talking about Sin City and the graphic novel. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by by its cover, but I love the cover for your book. I mean, it kind of it really conveys the the feel and the uh, atmosphere of the story. Did you have anything like how much exactly did you have to do with the cover design? Well, first, thank you. I love the covers. The, um, so it's an interesting kind of turn of events how it all worked out for the covers. So I'm a huge music fan, which I think also hopefully comes through in the books. Um, music obviously plays a very big role in my stories, but I had just signed up for Spotify premium last year after like years of saying I would never pay for a music service, but I went ahead and bit the bullet. And one of the first bands that I came across was a synthwave band called empathy test. And the only reason, you know, like, like you said, judging the book by its cover, the only reason I gave them a shot was because of the, their album cover, their album art. It just kept it captured my attention. I was like, Oh, I got to check these guys out. Well, Needless to say, the music resonates with me. I love one of my favorite bands. And I just that aesthetic from his album art kind of was like, hey, I want to go with that kind of concept. So I reach out to the dude uh, through email, I think. He has a website for all his graphic design. I said, hey, I love the cover that you did for Empathy Tests. That has a similar vibe that I want for my book. Or, you know, Have you ever done a commission for a book before? And he said, no send me your book and I'll, and I'll check, you know, I'll check it out and see what I think. So I sent him the first parts, parts one and two of one of Noor. And he reached back after a couple of days and said he loved it. It was great. He already had some ideas and he kind of, he would, he went with it. And then of course there's kind of this weird little turn of events where he's also one of the musicians in that band. I didn't know that. So he was saying, Oh, I'm so glad you love the music. And I said, yeah, can you let the guys know that I think it's great? He says, well, I, make the music you know the other dude saying i i'm the musician you didn't know that and i said no i didn't know that my mind was freaking blown so um but no he actually all of that that was no direction for me whatsoever those concepts for part one and two straight, straight from him so the visual 
aspect of how these characters look, that's all right out of his imagination. So it's kind of cool how it all came to be. And the way I look at it, like, like you said, that, that defines the whole look of the book. As far as I'm concerned, everything is exactly how, you know, how the covers show that's how the characters look. And that's the feel of the, of the book. So he nailed it. He really nailed it. Nice. So what was your inspiration for injecting what I would consider psi phenomena into a noir story? And what I mean by that is people that seem to have psychic abilities like Colorist Davies, Charlie, and Farrah. Uh, well, I mean, if you look at noir as a whole, it's a very cerebral genre to begin with, right? You've got a lot of characters who you kind of go into their headspace a bit more, I think, than some other fiction, or at least back then anyways, to try to figure out what makes these people tick. So you're already in their, their headspace to begin with. And I really love the concept. If you're going to have a black and white world where color is rare, but people can bring color out, which is, I mean, realistically, it's kind of a form of magic, I suppose, or, you know, it's, it's science, magic-y, it's something, right? Uh, I think one of the reviewers called it magical realism, which I thought was fantastic. Then I wanted other abilities like that, you know, but not super-powered, super, you know, not superheroes. So I wanted to keep it a little more grounded, a little more based in some kind of reality, or at least the reality that we hear about, Um like uh, Oracle Joe, um, you, you hear about him just briefly at the end of part one. Uh, he becomes kind of a major presence in part three. You know that there's there's the ability to hear things and like for Charlie to touch blood and, and get images. There's psychometry, which is um, a supposed ability where people can touch objects and learn about the previous owners. And so there's all these kind of bases in reality, but I wanted to make it more of a fictional, more enjoyable kind of little little stretch. I don't know stretch stretch the truth a little bit, if you will, just to make it more, more enjoyable in the book form. So I don't know. It just kind of, if you're going to go the, down the rabbit hole with, with a colorist, you might as well go down the rabbit hole with everybody else. And I don't know. I think it enhances the narrative because you've got this story set in 1986. Nobody has cell phones, you know, all the really computers are still in their infancy. And so I wanted to give it a little bit of a science fiction fantasy vibe since those are my go-to genres for reading, but make it, fit in the world that I had. So it wasn't magic necessarily. It's, you know, I, mean, I call it magical realism, but it wasn't magic per se. It's just something that these people can do that supposedly people nowadays can kind of do, you know, if you read into the folklore and stuff. Have you seen the previews for the black phone, the movie with, uh, Oh yeah. Have you seen it yet? No, not yet. Okay. So me and my fiance went and watched it. And I don't think this is a spoiler alert because you pretty much see from the uh, commercial that the children that the killers killed are, are trying to interact with them through that black phone. But what I loved about that is, you know, I'm like, do I really believe in ghosts and, and all this? As long as there's some sort of a some sort of basis in reality, basically, these kids are, for lack of a better word, leftover energy. And they only have a certain amount of time before they just kind of fade away from this limbo they're in. At some point, they forget their name, they forget what happened to them, but they're able to transmit this energy into a, you know, a phone that no longer works, which, you know, a phone converts a signal to speech. So I thought that was really cool. And it kind of reminded me of how you use those abilities in your characters. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Uh, Joe Hill, right? Black phone. Yeah, I think that was based off of one of his works. And, you know, it's, 
yeah, to me, that is exactly right. You know, to take um, a little bit of a supernatural element, and I love supernatural. My my default right now is horror, right? I write for more really beautiful. I'm writing horror short stories. So I wanted to inject maybe a little bit of that supernatural element in a way that was more, like you said, scientific, right? You're turning it into energy. Like it's, yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a very good, very good analogy right there. So I like the way you explain the backstory behind the colorless world with excerpts from what I think were supposed to be I guess they were like textbooks and newspaper articles. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, so that was kind of, um, I don't know, some authors, they have a way of injecting all this narrative history into their story. And a lot of times I think some authors kind of stumble with it where you're going along and you're learning about a character and, and, and you're halfway through a chapter and things are happening. And then all of a sudden you've got like five pages of exposition and it kind of grinds the narrative to a halt a little bit. You're like, wait, and this is cool. But why are we doing this now? The character was in the middle of something else. And is he really going to stop and think for the, like, you know, the history of the world for a couple hours, you know? So to me, that was a way to kind of nip that in the bud and keep that history element available without it grinding down um, one of the chapters and making it stop. And like, okay, now we're shifting back into thousands of years ago. So I thought how cool it would be to just take excerpts from magazines and newspapers and all that stuff and, and add them as quasi chapters to, to fill out the history of the world without stopping what was ever, whatever was happening in a particular chapter. So how difficult is it to mix fictional and non-fictional historical facts together? Like this real thing led to this fictional thing. And, you know, honestly, I thought it'd be harder than it, than it ended up being, um, like King Midas. So there's a call out to King Midas. And I think it's in part two where, you know, they're, they're looking at the history of how this stuff came about and like Nicholas Flamel and his, um, his ability to transmute, you know, lead into gold and stuff. And how, like, how did these myths come about? You know, it's something I think about it anyways, but then you take a black and white world. And if he was a colorist and he was able to take this lead and colorless thing and turn it into this magical, shiny thing, like, holy crap, you know, it's, that would be a great basis for a fable or a myth. Um, I was trying to think of who was the richest person in the world, you know, King Tut back in the day was, you know, and so I don't know. I just thought how cool it would be to inject this history and it ended up being really easy to tie what we have, these realistic or fables, you know, from our history into that narrative. It all just kind of fit, you know, it was, it was kind of strange how, how, how well it fit together, honestly. Yeah. That's a lot of authors tell me when they, they feel like there's this insurmountable thing that they're going to have to tackle. They're amazed at how once they get in the flow you know, authors have that just stream of consciousness that they're like, oh, my God, yeah. it's like a wave you ride. You're like, all right, just hang on, you know. But, yeah, for sure. And it's weird. I don't know. And I don't know how other authors operate, but like literally this story for the last three years has been in my head nonstop. It's, you know, it was basically all I was thinking about. So, you know, your, your mind goes to some strange places, especially if you're tired, you're laying in bed at night and you've got these ideas pinging around and you're half asleep. And it's, I don't know, it's, if, if you're in your headspace about a topic enough, you will find connections. You'll, 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 you know, connect A to Z at some point in time. So yeah, it was just a constant cerebral state and I, it all kind of came together. And a lot of it just was kind of ad hoc last minute. I started writing, okay, I want you to tie it to some history what about this? And then I would kind of do a little bit of research on it and go, oh, well, that actually would fit perfectly in the narrative. And it would all just kind of, you know, just kind of came out. It was great. Awesome. So 
I can say that you relate to me as well when you lay down at night and close your eyes and then the three ring circus starts. Always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you're in the shower, you're driving, you're cooking dinner, you're, you know, doing yard work. And yeah, I mean, you're paying attention to what you're doing, but one half of your brain is literally not there. It's elsewhere. You know, it's thinking about this. It's thinking about the story. It's thinking about the music for the story. It's thinking about dialogue. I mean, oh my God. And I, I think other authors would, would agree too. Like these characters talk to each other in your head and it's, it's awesome. And it's freaking, it's, it, it drives you crazy too. Like after a while, I don't know, but I get burned out sometimes on this because it's just, it's so, it's so persistent. Does it make it hard to concentrate? Sometimes. Kind of like a, kind of like a, what would you call it? A, a, an author's ADD? <laughs> yes, very much. Yes. Yeah. And it does. I mean, sometimes it takes you out of the moment of whatever you're doing in real life too. So it does. It definitely makes it hard to concentrate. Awesome. Well, not awesome, but <laughs> amazing that uh, you, you have that, that creative drive pumping in the background. Yeah, but I'm kind of glad, too, that I've reached the end of this particular series or this particular story arc because I need a break. Like, my mind needs a break. Yeah, yeah I bet. So you're, uh, you're creating as you uh, mow the lawn and as you uh, mop the floor? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're never not creating. And it's just, I've gotten to be, uh, I've gotten to be real good with my iPhone. So I'm, it's voice to text and I'll go into the notepad on my iPhone. And I've got thousands and thousands of notes because I'm halfway in the middle of something. And I'm like, I can't stop to write this down. So I, you know, I grab my phone and I do voice to text into my phone. And uh, actually about a, I'd say about a quarter to a third of all of monochrome noir that comes from notes on the phone that I just kind of stitched together and made into a cohesive whole. Cause that's, that's how often I'm either driving or doing something else and I have to annotate. And so, yeah, I'd say at least a quarter, maybe a third of that book was all done, you know, to my phone and then, and then transcribed over. Yeah. Uh, an author I interviewed, uh, Braden Riddick said that he wrote 90% of his novel on his phone. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like you and him share the, uh, the same dynamic that you're both fathers of two children. So I'm sure that makes it hard to, you know, find the time to sit down, especially if the inspiration hits you right then. Yeah. And they come first and they know they do. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it is difficult as a, as a father working a full-time job to kind of find the time to write. Um, at least the first couple books in Monochrome Noir were all kind of guerrilla. I call it guerrilla writing. You're writing with whatever you have, whenever you have, wherever you That's can write good. it. Gorilla, <laughs> gorilla, yeah. gorilla warfare, gorilla creativity. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, you're doing whatever you can do. So I would take my laptop everywhere uh the kids were at swimming lessons and so they're they're off doing their thing and i'm and i'm jotting down a couple notes while i'm trying to watch them and so it's you know i i think i, mean, I know jk rowling eh, you know lover or hater but she did create an amazing world and she did a lot of that i think on like napkins and stuff you know so you, you work with what you have and it's amazing i think some authors the the product they can come up with just given the fact that they're jotting it down on, on napkins or scratch paper or whatever they're doing, you know, and, and the, they have these amazing finished products. So yeah, it, it you find the time, it, you make it work. It's, it's difficult, especially because for me, I'm not naturally always in the mood to write, if you will, the, the muse isn't always there. And so if the muse is there, you have to capture that as fast as you can. And it's difficult when you're like in the middle of something with the kids and you can't stop. So it's, yeah, it, it's a, it's an effort for sure. Yeah. Cre creative impulses are fleeting little, almost <laughs> like little, little things that scurry away. If you don't grab yeah, them. You gotta, 
catch them if you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so uh, you live in Utah, correct? Uh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't get any further into that. But uh... <laughs> I am not a native Utah, and we'll go with oh, that. Okay. So yeah, yeah. No, I'm from I'm from Los Angeles originally. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah, I was born and raised in Texas, but I have never gotten used to uh, the Texas heat and humidity. Oh, yeah. I live southeast Texas, so I'm like right in the armpit of the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I travel down there sometimes for work. So, I, yeah, I know. I get it. Mm. Well, so how do you get in such a, you know, kind of the dark frame of mind you need to get into in such a like a bright, arid environment? Well, it's interesting that you say that because you think, I mean, Utah is bright, it's arid, it's, it's, you know, wide open, big skies, a lot of, I guess, a lot of prairie, a lot of high desert, you know, but it's not all happy and shiny out here, you know, despite what the, uh, the, the general populace would like you to believe. I think the highest number of prescribed antidepressants comes from Utah. Uh, honestly, that, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's at least really, uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot. Um, yeah. So it's, especially in the area that we call a happy Valley, if you will, that's where it's not, they're not happy at all. So they're medicated. Oh, happy. It's, yeah. It's tongue in cheek. Very much. So, yeah, there's a lot of dark undercurrents out here, and you would never necessarily know from the outside looking in, and I wouldn't have known. But once you once you've lived here for a while, you start to see it, and it's kind of there's two sides up to Utah. You've got your your dominant religion side, and then you've got your influx of folks like me that came from out of state. You know, and it's like this this subtle war where they're trying to push, you know, and we're trying to push back, and we're you know, it's we're finding an interesting an uneasy truce of how to live together. It, it, so there's actually a lot of darkness in Utah. You would just never necessarily see it. Um, but I, I know I, I've had that since I was a kid. I've always been attracted more towards the, the darker side of life. And it's not that I was an unhappy child. I wasn't, I wasn't a morose kid by any means, but it, that stuff always appealed to me. Like why, why is that person so sad? Why is that person so violent? Why is this the way it is? And it's, um, I guess like Superman versus Batman, right? Superman, he's the Boy Scout. He's he does good. It's he's you know his arc is always unless he's being controlled or something you know mind control. He's always going to go the good route. Give me Batman any day of the week where he's got these morally conflicted views where he wants to do good but his doing good is beating the shit out of people. You know, so it's like this kind of this weird juxtaposition that to me has always been more fascinating. I want to explore the why of that. So yeah. Yeah, I'm like you. I don't really get people that don't like to examine the dark side of life. There's people I know that are just like, you bring up anything negative, they just change the subject. Do you yeah. like puppies? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I struggle with that, you know, because it, 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 like you said, it is an aspect of ourselves. We all have it. You know, it's if it's that 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 dark side whispering to us, you know, to do, to don't do the right, don't take the narrow path to, you know, to get revenge or to cut that person off or whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever that, that moment is in life. And a lot of times we, we, we were taught we're not supposed to pay attention to that. We're supposed to ignore it. We're supposed to shove it to the side. Don't, don't act on it. But we all at some point in our lives have acted on it, you know, whether it's big or small, you know, we've, we've done something that we're not supposed to. We've been vindictive. We've been judgmental, whatever it is. We've all done it. We all have it. And it, uh, I think for people to deny that it's there, I think, is kind of silly because it's like, no, you're not kidding anybody. We all it's just a question of do you give into it or not? That That's the question. Or, you know, some people are better, I think, at, with, at withstanding it or um, shutting it back down where others obviously are not. And they, they let it 
have free reign. So, mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what I find, at least in noir film, is that the protagonist, you were talking earlier about, you know, getting inside their mind and what they're thinking. It's almost like you join them in this hour and a half to two hour long introspective nightmare. Yes, you know? yes. Yeah. And it's like a mental tug of war with themselves, you know, where they're at war with themselves and what they should do. You know, they know what society expects them to do. They know what maybe their their unwritten code of honor says that they should do. But maybe that's not what they're going to do, because maybe the femme fatale has a bit of spell. Maybe the money's too good. You know, whatever it is, I think that to me is the the underlying core of it is what will this person who we're supposed to think is a good person what will they do in this situation that may test them you know Mm. i think that's one of the reasons the private investigator archetype works so well is because they're doing something that in some cases they're you know trying to help somebody in a divorce case or something like that but a lot of times they're doing something like trying to find a missing person or whatnot so they're they're trying to do something good. They're in this position of authority, almost like law enforcement, yes. but not quite. But they have no oversight. Yep. They're, they're like, not beholden to the rules. Yeah, yeah. They're a lone wolf. So it's up to them how much ethics they want to practice. Exactly. And it's flexible. That's I think what makes most of them it's so engaging is their more their morality is a little flexible depending on the circumstance. So you never quite know what are they going to do in this situation. So yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, so you you answered one of my questions. I wondered if you had ever lived in Los Angeles or New York, you know, where the the classic noir setting was. So you mentioned Los Angeles, was it? Yeah, I was born in Huntington Beach, which is just outside of L.A., but I'm very familiar with L.A., yeah. And how long did you live there? Off and on throughout my childhood. And then I actually moved to D.C. area for two years when I was in my early 20s. So I have experience with the other side of the coast, too, with Washington, D.C., which is a far cry different than Los Angeles. And I actually still have family in L.A. I go out there every now and again. Um, it's interesting to see how it's developed. I tried to inject some of that in with Henry, at least in the first part where he's talking about growing up with LA and as the skyscrapers were getting taller and taller, as he was getting taller and taller in his youth and stuff. I tried to inject some of that into that story. Cause that's kind of, that was my childhood, you know, was to see, it was already a big city in the eighties and seventies anyways, early seventies, early eighties. But I mean, it just, it, it was booming everywhere you looked, it was booming. And I wanted to kind of have that same sense if I could in the story. Mm-hmm. So how does, uh, I guess DC compare to Los Angeles? Cause now I'm wondering, because I thought Utah was a particular way, but then it was like those goddamn postcards are lying. <laughs> oh, they're lying for sure. Yeah. No. And it's actually DC is kind of crazy. Cause you look at, you look at West Coast versus East Coast. You look at, you know, DC area, Virginia, all these old these these old cities. I mean, they have so much history. Um, you know, it, you know, DC has a lot of free museums. Their their public transportation is a lot cleaner and more organized than let's say the, the public transportation in Los Angeles. Where Los Angeles, as far as American standards, is a relatively new city. Um, and so you don't have that projected that history out in California that you do in Virginia, where in Virginia we lived like the right we were out right outside of dc in virginia there was a house that would still survive that was still standing from the civil war and it still had like cannonballs embedded into its walls from when it was struck by cannon fire so there's all this history out there that you would never ever see on the west coast it doesn't exist out there you know so it, it was kind of a weird i don't know duality with modern versus even though the east coast is modern but there's still that old school element that you just can't fake you can't make that up it's either there or it's not interesting well so uh 
I know that books three and four are coming. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Hopefully book three will hopefully be the end of this month. Awesome. Uh, on available on paperback, paperback and uh, ebook for now. Yep. We'll, we'll audio book. will have to wait until they're all published. Okay. Well, so what made you want to release a story in four parts? Uh, two reasons, really. First, because I'm doing a classic noir tale, if you will, even though it's kind of set in modern times, I still wanted to have that feel. So I wanted to, to follow that model, if you will, release them that way. And then the other reason was to kind of nip myself in the bud a little bit because I'm not the fastest writer. Uh, I have a lot of, obviously, I've got a lot of personal things that pull me away from it, but um, I'm not like I said, I'm not always in the, the mood to write it. The muse isn't always there. So I, I tend to write a little slower than most authors. And so I think by releasing them in a serial format and getting that positive feedback from readers has definitely helped me kind of get my ass in gear and write a little faster. Um, so this story can in fact come out and end, you know, cause it's otherwise, I don't know. It probably would have taken me a whole lot longer to, to actually finish it. Yeah. Well, so all four books, what's the word count on that? <laughs> Holy shit. Um, I I actually just literally, like two days ago, I finished writing part four. Um, oh, okay. It now needs to be edited, needs to have the beta reader feedback and stuff. But the, the, the bulk of the work is actually done. It's like three and a half year fucking project has finally reached its end. Um, it is topping out right now at 227,000 words, which... I know it'll I'll lose about one to two thousand in this last this edit for part four. So let's figure two hundred twenty-five thousand total. Two hundred twenty-five thousand and a standard novel. What's the <sighs> most novels come in a little less than that? So most novels about one eighty, one ninety. So this will be on the like to put it in perspective. I think it was Stephen King's The Stand, unabridged was like 320,000, which that's is that's immediately what came to my mind. Yeah. Right. Thinking I mean, about the stand. Yeah. Yeah. That thing's, that thing's ginormous. And so I'm like, okay, I'm two thirds of the stand. Like that's freaking cool. So yeah. Great book. Oh yes. So uh, you kind of answered my next question. I was wondering if you wrote the books then published or if you wrote them all at once and then slowly released them. Sounds like was, were like books one and two done and then released or so books one and two were book, book one was done. Book two was almost done. Well, let's, let's, let's retract that book two was done. It just wasn't final edited when I released part one. And then part three was mostly written when I released part one, part four hadn't even been started yet. So I had to finish part three right after I released part one. Uh, so it was kind of this, yeah, I'm kind of always just right behind the curve where that release is now prompting me to get to the next one, get to the next one. The biggest holdup, uh, honestly, is the covers. Uh, Adam, my artist, he's very, very busy. Obviously, he's in a band. He's in another band. He's done some work for very high-profile companies that I'm not supposed to talk about. And then he's also got a bunch of other projects on the side. So he's busy. And so my covers actually, um, is kind of what takes takes a while. So I'm yeah, part three is done. It's edited. It's ready to go. And I'm literally just waiting for my cover to give to the publisher and be like, here you go. Well, my favorite character so far is Feral Farah. And I, th <laughs> That's awesome. I think that was cemented in my mind when she told Henry that she's not going to call him by his first name because, quote, familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> and what's really uh, good about that character is that you somehow made the archetype of the crazy cat lady into something pretty badass. 
That was so, the goal. So, well, mission accomplished. <laughs> God damn it! How did the yes. uh, how did the idea for her character come about? Um, I don't know. I wanted somebody who could tr- truly kind of challenge Henry on a mental level, not like Victoria had because she did. She was as far as like wordsmithing and and sarcasm and stuff. Right? Victoria is e- easily his equal, maybe his better. But I wanted somebody who could challenge him on a mental level as well, but not the traditional old man, you know, mentor figure, which we're, which is typical in the genre. It's the guy he learned it from, or one of his drinking buddies or something like that, or the villain, but necessarily is, you know, the, if you look at James Bond, the villain's always like supposedly his equal in the mental area, you know, mental arena. Um, so I wanted to go completely opposite of that. And I thought, how cool would it be if it was like this young girl that he, was always stymied with that completely blew his mind and, and it ran him in circles. And I don't know, it was, I, I kind of explored like how far can I take this character making her somewhat inappropriate without like crossing the line into, Hey, you can't say that in a book. Cause she's this young girl. And I didn't want to sexualize her in any way. I, I, I don't believe in that for young characters. It's just not cool. And that is not their relationship. Their relationship is much more of a, this this uneasy, strange friendship where they're still feeling they've only ever met once before and it was real brief. And so they're still feeling each other out, but they have this kind of connection. They're kind of drawn to each other on a mental level. And so I don't know, it just she basically kind of created herself, if you will. I wanted this crazy cat lady, but I didn't want a traditional old, decrepit, crazy cat lady. I wanted this young, kind of spry, you know, really complete 180 from what you would think the character would be. And then she basically kind of wrote herself after that, that of all the characters in the books, like she's the one that her voice was the loudest. She was only supposed to be in there for like maybe half a chapter. And she was like, Nope, we're taking over the narrative for a while. And I'm glad because those chapters are fun. They're, they're a lot of fun to write. They're a lot of fun to read. Um, And they do. So so you're saying in book three and four, she's not necessarily her, but her presence, I guess, if you will, um, she kind of leads them to another another companion joining their little party. Um, and it's all because of her. So, yeah, it's I don't know. I just I, I thought it would be kind of fun to toy with the idea. And then she just took everything over. Nice. Yeah, she kind of reminds me of uh, the the Norse god Odin walking around with uh, his, <laughs> yes. his what did he have? He had wolves and he has some ravens. Yeah, yeah, he has ravens. Yeah. yeah, just walking around in the darkness with her cats just trailing behind her. And I, yeah. I never thought of that until I read your book. Like, you know, piranhas are tiny little fish, but in a swarm, they will mess you up. Yeah. And I started thinking about cats. What would that be like if a big swarm of cats just landed on you? Yeah, that actually, she, she talks about that, you know, where she's talking about how she's safe, you know, she's perfectly safe in this environment. And actually that comes up later in book four, where she gets a visitor that she really doesn't want and how, you know, it's, it's, they left because there's, yeah, there's literally like a couple, two, 300 feral cats that are just like eyeing them and hissing at them. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the crazy cat videos on YouTube, but I think there was one where it was an animal control guy was trying to capture this cat on a balcony or something. The cat was just jumping all over him and you couldn't stop it. I mean, the cat was a blur of energy, just pouncing on this dude all over his face. All, you know, and if that's just one of them, yeah. Yeah. Imagine a couple hundred. So yeah, it's Henry has that fear when he's trapped in the room with all these cats and they, they're starting to get a little riled up and he's like, Oh shit. (laughs) I, I might not make it out of here. Yeah. My, uh, my mom, like, 
thankfully, soon after I moved out, I think it was 19 or 20, rescued this cat. She called her Allie because she was an Allie cat, basically. But man, she she was it wasn't like you couldn't get near her because she would swat at you. She would she was like a predator. She would <laughs> seek you out and come fuck with you. I love it. Yeah, it's funny because the people who don't necessarily like aren't around cats all the time, like they have this this kind of preconceived notion that they're, they're like afraid of them which i kind of find i find amusing some kind of like i have an animal affinity and most cats love me but i get it because like, if, if a cat doesn't like you then there's nothing you can do about it like i even have that mentioned in my book later on you know where she's saying any any but any fool with like a tennis ball and a, and a t-bone steak can make a friend out of a dog but if a cat doesn't like you they just don't like you there's nothing you can do to shape their mm-hmm. mind you know <laughs> Cats are like high society aristocrats. <laughs> 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 Aristocats. That's where they got yeah, it from. Yeah, okay. that's, that's exactly gotcha. where they got it from. Yeah, yeah, they're stuck up as hell. Yeah. Well, so was Farah uh, your favorite character to write, or oh yeah, or do you? Okay, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, she's yeah, definitely because she's just so much fun, and, and and to take her her way of speaking, right? So she has that very Dickensian you know, speech pattern, she, she harkens back to like a pre a previous era, you know? And so to me, that was, that was fun to take your traditional, you know, conversation between two characters. And of course, Henry, he's, he's, he's 1986. He's got his vernacular. She's got this old timey Charles Dickens vernacular, which don't often jive. And so he's, you know, part of the fun I think of their conversation is, is he's always trying to just decipher what the hell she just said, you know? And she's just waiting for him to figure it out and like and calling him out on it when he can't, which I love. You know, there's a couple words that she uses and he's like, I literally have no idea what that means. You know? <laughs> I had to look a and few of them up. <laughs> <laughs> she's reveling in the fact that she's got this like almost 40 year old dude stymied because like, yeah, she's just running circles around him. It's, it, that, that to me was so much fun to write. Yeah, it's this funny juxtaposition of you've got this person living on the street, yet they speak like they're not only highly educated, but highly educated from a different time period. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, and I think one of my, actually, Heather Miller, we'll talk about her later, but she's on our, she's on our last Waltz imprint. But before that, she, she just read the book and she enjoyed it. She said that was her favorite character because it kind of like, that's, like for her, she said, in fact, that entire book, it's it's the sub characters, it's kind of these side characters that really kind of bring the story together. So that was kind of my intent. Is yeah, you've got your Henry, you got your main character, your your very you know hard boiled, hard drinking detective archetype. You know, you've got Charlie, you've got Victoria, the femme fatale. You know, so you've got these 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 characters that you kind of expect, right? Everybody expects these certain characters in these types of books, but I wanted to kind of fill out the roster with side characters and supporting characters that you don't expect because that, to me, is part of the fun. And that's she pointed that out that her favorite part of the book, outside of the whole you know black and white world aesthetic, was these supporting characters because they were just so different, so varied, so fun. And so that was really my intent. If you're going to have a roster, why not make them all kind of unique in their own way and fun in their own way. Yeah. Well, you kind of spoke on it already about whenever you get the creative muse inspiration, you know, if you have your phone, you'll get on your phone. If you happen to be around, uh, you know, something you can write pen to paper, you can do that. But when you do get those times where you can sit down do you have like a particular writing atmosphere? The reason I ask is because I looked on your Instagram page and I saw something you referred to as your research nook. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this, my oldest, my oldest boy moved out um, earlier, actually late last year and his basement bedroom 
just kind of sat with all his stuff in it forever. And I had finished the, the room for him. And so now that he was gone, you know, after a while, I was like, wait a minute, I've got this bedroom, which is a good size room in the basement, which was definitely the cooler part of the house, um, especially in these like 102 degree summers. Uh, so why don't, why am I not using this space? You know, I write, but I always write on the couch or in my bed or in the car, wherever I can, you know, I, I never had kind of a dedicated writing space. So it was just like, I don't know why I didn't think about it sooner. Um, but I cleaned out the room and I moved all my stuff down here. And I, it's been a drastic improvement of my, both my writing time and my writing ability. I think having this dedicated space that is mine, that is, there's no distractions. Um, I've got like a reclining chair. If I need to sit back and read, I've got incense burning behind me. It, it kind of just, I don't know. It's something about all of those different senses being, massaged or being addressed, if you will, that just is very conducive to good writing. So yeah, best thing I've ever done. And I wish I had done it sooner. Um, it is, it is, yeah, it's definitely improved my writing significantly. So you know, I've got my one desk with my laptop where I do with the majority of my writing. I've got my other desk with my main computer. Um, I usually have music playing. Oh, is, it, is that, is that where you are right now? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's where oh, I am. Okay. Right now, yeah. okay. And so I've got like, I've got two computers. I've got my writing computer, which is my laptop. And then I've got my actual like main desktop. Um, that's where I do all my research. So if I need to pull up 1986 Los Angeles history, if I need to pull up building schematics, whatever I need to look at, I'll pull it up on the main machine. And then I've got music playing there. I'd always write to music always. And so that's, that's all right here. So it's all within this kind of this three foot square, everything I need to write. I've got pen and paper. I've got, you know, red ink, blue ink, black ink, whatever I need. I've even got my remarkable, which is also another cool, um, gift that I got that is enhanced my writing significantly. That's where I do all of my author edits because it basically simulates writing on paper without writing on paper. So you can download it to a PDF. I'll download like all of part four. Now that it's done, I'm going to download it to the remarkable in a PDF format. And it feels and looks like you're reading it on paper. So it's something about if you write it on digital, it's better to edit it on paper, if you will, because you, you get, I don't know, your mind kind of gets used to the way that it looks on a screen and you end up missing things. And so having it printed out or having it on another medium allows you to kind of break from that mindset that you're already in and find things that you might have missed earlier. So I'll do all my editing on the Remarkable. So it's, yeah, just this little nook has been the best thing ever. Well, so it sounds like for the most part, you're kind of plotting things out in your head. But when it comes to research, like what you were talking about, do you somewhat have an outline when you're, you know, trying to follow a uh, a linear passage of time? Uh, kind of. So parts one and two was very much a pantser effort. I didn't jot anything down. I just went with it. I would write entire passages, realizing later that the, that passage actually needed to take place you know, in a prior chapter, some cutting and pasting, I'm reorganizing, restructuring. It went from like, I kind of had an issue with chapter lengths initially. So it was like, ended up, you know, I think it was five chapters initially that ended up getting broken out to 11 because it was just, these chapters were way too big. Um, but that was all seat of the pants, kind of making it up as I went. I did, I had never written anything this big before. So I didn't know the inherent rules I needed to follow. You know, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So um, it, but once I started adding these roster of characters. And once I see it, I need to know like what day of the week it is that these things are transpiring, what time of day that these things are transpiring that I had to actually kind of start doing a generic outline just to keep my, 
myself in check and make sure that it was that it was following some kind of linear progression that wasn't getting out of the whack. Because the readers will notice that if you jump like from a scene and it was daytime and now it's nighttime and no time's passed, they'll they'll see that and they'll call you out on it. You know, so you got to be kind of careful with that. Um, so you, it, for parts three and four, I outlined them very very broadly. I said, okay, in this chapter, I think I want this to happen, and then the following chapter. I need to resolve X thread and start new thread. Um, but it was all at a very, very high level. I mean, that's literally all I said. This happens, resolve it. And then uh, the writing itself kind of goes where it's going to go and you resolve it that way. But I, I did have to have some kind of basic outline just to keep it all, to keep it all like flowing. Which genre of literature, uh, including nonfiction, do you normally gravitate to? Uh, science fiction and fantasy, honestly, for like my whole life. And then horror also. I've been reading Stephen King since I was like 12. Um, so those three, those are the big three. A uh, little bit of historical fiction, if you will, um, depending on, I don't know, it depends on the story. Um, I think In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick, uh, which is kind of the retelling or kind of the, the explaining the, the origins of Moby Dick. Um, that was a hell of a story. Uh, Devil in the White City, all these kind of historical novels really kind of, I enjoy those, especially if they have more of a macabre or, you know, dangerous element to them. Uh, I used to read a lot of action books when I was a kid, uh, these male action books where it's like, it's very much James Bond without all the intrigue. It's just, dude fighting off you know the, the evil of the week if you will and always escaping by the skin of his teeth and somehow never gets shot you know it's just you know i don't know and very masculine very much male fantasy shit. i used to read that a lot as a teenager um but honestly still to this day it's going to be science fiction and fantasy that's always my my big one and then horror mm-hmm. never read any uh southern gothic uh depends there's a couple authors i've read i think sherry priest had one that was southern gothic um heather miller who's on our imprint she had a, a little southern gothic short story that i read and really enjoyed but not nah, not so much although i do want to check out um you had an interviewee on it was mississippi Blue. oh yeah and yeah i want to check that one yeah. out because that one's on my t- tbr because that sounded yeah, amazing Brittany, yeah Brittany johnson she uh Brittany johnson, a great book yeah yeah, uh, she also just came out with a, a novelette, which she describes as a dark romance. So I guess kind of like, um, I don't know, I haven't got a chance to read it yet. I'm looking forward to it, though. It's a bit of a digression from what she was doing, but uh, I think it'll still have the same feel and voice and kind of the dark aesthetic that she had with Mississippi awesome. Blue. So yeah. Looking forward to that. Hell yeah. So um, the authors that you mentioned, Stephen King and the like, would you say those are also your writing influences or is there somebody somebody that stands out? You know, that's kind of that's a tough question because, you know, if if you're a reader, anybody's going to be your influence. Like Poe, I I love Poe. And even though I don't write like Poe, at least not with this story, I would like to write a gothic story, if you will, in the vein of Poe. And I think writing Farrah's uh, dialogue would help with that. Um, but no, it's, you take something away from everybody that you read, but if I had to take the biggest influences, I would say Stephen King for sure, not necessarily how he writes, but what he writes. I mean, the dude can write really any genre and do it successfully. He's even written some detective noir stories and stuff and, and done it well. Uh, Brandon Sanderson, he's a local Utah author, but he's, worldwide famous he finished the wheel of time series um when the when the initial author died um and of course he's got his own 
fantasy series, science fiction series. He's written a couple of noir pieces that were awesome. Uh, so that dude can just, again, he can cross genres without any difficulty whatsoever and is very impressive. Uh, if I had to pick one person, though, I would say Marisha Pessel. Not a lot of people know her. She writes very slow. Like she, I think she only puts out a book like every seven years, and I don't know why. I don't know if she's got a gaggle of kids or if it's, she, you know, if it's just not her, if she doesn't get the news that often. But she has a book called Night Film, um, kind of a detective story, if you will, but very kind of low stakes, very intimate affair. But her writing, the way that she writes is amazing. There's beautiful passages. There's ugly passages. There's very humdrum passages, but it's all, it all ties in. It's very cohesive. I think she captures real life perfectly because real life, there's moments of beauty, there's moments of ugliness, and there's a lot of moments of in between. Um, And there's something about the way she writes that just captures that effortlessly. And so if if anybody, I would say I tried to model my, my writing voice uh, based off of hers. We've already kind of talked about how, you know, you are, you always have your um, your stories just running circles in your mind, whether you're, you know, doing chores around the house, driving to work, whatever. And uh, I listened to I think it was Radio NBC, okay. something like that. I don't know if I'm getting that right, but uh, I heard you talk a lot about being an introvert. And uh, do you think being an introvert naturally lends itself to being a good writer? I do. Um I mean, I know there's a lot of extroverts out there that are wonderful writers, I'm sure. But I think with being an introvert, you tend to spend a lot more time in your own headspace. Um, And so I think that kind of lends itself to more or more expressive creativity, I guess, if if I had to, if I had to kind of put a name to it, Uh, the writing process itself is, is insular by nature that you can't do it with somebody you're, you're writing your story. I know you can co-author something with somebody, I guess, but even then you're in completely separate areas, writing your little contributions. So writing itself is very insular. It's very solitary, um, project. And so I think you have to have a little bit of that introverted nature. Otherwise you're going to drive yourself crazy because you're in, you're by yourself all this time and you're in your own headspace all this time. And so, I, I mean, you're taking voices, from your head and you're putting them into in, in, on page. So yeah, I think, I, I think having that introverted nature allows you to really kind of capture more uh, dynamic characters, if you will, because you're in your headspace constantly. So you know what it's like to be, you can maybe know what it's like to be in their headspace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm an introvert myself and it, it's funny how a lot of people conflate being an introvert with being shy. Yeah. Like, like somebody that that doesn't realize that'll be like, wait a minute, you're doing a podcast and you're on a podcast and you're both talking shit. You don't sound like introverts, but right. yeah. what it, what it means is literally you're turned inward. So, yes. uh, when you're turned inward, there's, <laughs> I don't know. I was about to say your mind is like a playground, but sometimes my mind's like a bad neighborhood. If you spend too oh, much yeah. time in it, you'll get your ass kicked. <laughs> yep. Mine's a war zone every now and again, but no, you're right. I mean, a lot of people do mistake one for the other and it's, that's not the case at all. You know, and I, I am shy. There's times when I'm very shy, but an introvert it's, you know, you get your energy and you get your best creativity from the time when you're alone. You know, and that doesn't mean that you don't like hanging out with people. It doesn't mean that you can't hang out with people. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm very socially adept, but I just choose not to be. I would rather spend that time in my own headspace doing my own thing. And so, and it's not even that you don't like people. It's just you, 
you heal better on your own. You know, at the end of the day, after all the craziness of the day is is done, you don't want to go to a party. You don't want to go hang out. You want to go home, read a book, watch a movie, listen to music, whatever. And you just want that, that, that self time, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, can you uh, tell me a little bit about your role at morbidlybeautiful.com? Yeah. I see you're, uh, you're listed as the music editor and one of the lead writers. I am, which I kind of find amusing because I haven't, I haven't submitted a bunch of stuff lately and she's already called me out on it. But <laughs> Morbidly Beautiful is a great, great site. It's an it's a independent site that does a lot of reviews. Um, it's easy to say it kind of kind of hues towards horror because it does, but that's not the only output. And Stephanie does not want that to be her only output. It's anything that's dark, anything that's, that's kind of has that undercurrent of morbidity or, you know, so it doesn't have to be horror. It could be any dark, dark stories, you know? And so I, which I, which I admire because it's as much as I love horror, that's not the only dark stuff out there, you know? And so, yeah, that's, that's what I do with my podcast. I want, you know, it's, it's not just horror. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, cause if you look at reality, I mean, as, as fun as horror is, I mean, nothing can compete to the human monster, right? The, the, the creep, the, the cruelty that, that, that mankind can come up with. There's nothing that can compare to that. So, you know, but it's, it's just a fun project of mine. I love being part of the site. Uh, it's, it's not a paid gig, you know, it's, it's contribution only. And, but I kind of look at it as my break away from like the, the serious writing, you know, I need, I need a palate cleanser, if you will, from writing monochrome noir. I can go write a, a movie review or a book review or even a music review. So as a music editor, you know, we could occasionally get, um, solicitation from record companies or whatnot saying, Hey, there's this band, they have kind of a dark undercurrent. Can you check them out and see if you'd like to interview, you know, review them on the site or interview them or stuff. So I can't, I can't handle all that. Um, any music that I think just kind of fits that mold, whether it's dark or evil or whether it just has that kind of moody element to it. If it's, if it's good, I want to promote it, put it on the site. So yeah, I just do a lot of reviews mostly. It's, it's, it's cool. It's, it's a way to kind of, to, to, to free my mind from the shackles of like the book, if you will. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I have to admit, I wasn't very observant at first. I assumed or thought you were self-published, <laughs> but I realized that last waltz is actually a small publishing startup or yes. have they been around for a while? No, only a year. Okay. But actually don't beat yourself up because I did. So here's, I did self-publish monochrome war part one oh, okay. on Amazon. Yeah. I put that out myself. Um, so it's, it's weird. And I, and I want to kind of give this out like a shout out to these other authors that maybe are kind of going down the same path as I do, as I do with, with self-publishing. I mean, definitely go for it. Don't, don't stop yourself, but also kind of reality check, right? So you, you write this work and I don't know how other authors do it. They probably write it in six months. You know, mine took a couple of years to write. I think it's this great idea. I think it's these cool characters. You're ready to make, make your mark on the world. And so you, you put it on Amazon and you publish it out there. You got a badass cover. You're like, Oh, this is going to draw all this attention. And you throw it out there and nothing happens because there's literally a million other fucking novels on Amazon that people are already reading people that are already following. So it's, it's kind of anticlimactic, if you will, where you think you're going to make this big splash and you, most of us really kind of don't, you know, cause it's, it's a, it's a flooded market. So it's hard to kind of stand out, but I wanted to go the self-publishing route initially anyways. Um, and then once I realized that there wasn't a lot of attention, if you will, in self-publishing and I'm not naturally a salesman, I am an introvert. I am kind of shy. I'm not going to be out there hawking my book 24 seven. That's just not me. It'll never happen. Um, so I actually ended up 
Damon Manks, who owns Last Waltz, had posted that he was publishing his first story through Last Waltz Publishing. And I was like, oh, cool. Tell me about them. And he says, well, I'll tell you about them, but they're me. I, I started it up. You know, it's my business. Um, and he actually started Last Waltz because of he had gotten um, kind of hooked up with another independent publisher a few years prior with some of his works. And they raked him over the coals, like didn't promote his books, didn't give him any author copies, took all the money that all the revenue that it earned. Like he got nothing out of it and almost lost like the rights to his books. So he had this, this, this terrible, terrible, terrible experience. And this was and, an independent publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. They fucked him over bad. And so he basically said, you know what? Never again. I'm going to start my own publishing house. I'm not ever have to deal with that crap again. Also, he started it as a way to give other authors a home where they would never experience something like that. And so he kind of gave me this breakdown of why he did it. And I said, that's what I want to be a part of. He says, are you sure? Cause you know, I'm brand new. I can't offer you a lot of money. And I'm like, dude, if, if we're in it for the money, then going this, the, in the publishing route or self-publishing route is not the way we're supposed to go. If you want money, you got to go with the big house publishers. It's not about the money. It's about getting the book out there, telling the story, even if one person just reads it and says, Hey, like this resonated this, I love this story. I can relate to this character. Even if it's just one person that makes it totally worth it. Um, but I wanted to be a part of a family like that, where he was like, I'm not going to let other authors get treated like I did. Um, and so he re-released part one on his imprint. And that's where all of my, all of the rest of monochrome noir and any spinoffs will be released. will be on last Waltz. Okay. So uh, I guess the editing process, beta reading and all that, is that done through Last Waltz? For other authors, probably, but okay. I'm kind of a control freak. So I do that. So, yeah. <laughs> so no, Stand I have solidarity, brother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I actually have an editor that I use. Um, I pay for it out of pocket. Uh, the covers, I handle all that. Everything for that end is, co- is covered by me. It's not because I don't trust Damon. It's not because I don't trust Les Waltz. I do. Like my, my book is in good hands. He loves the concept. He's a great dude. He's very forthcoming about everything. It's just me. I don't, I don't want to release control of that. I want to have that, that creative control of it. But it's also kind of a point of pride, if you will, that when I hand him a finished product, like it is a finished product. When I give him Monochrome Noir Part 3 in a couple weeks, like cover everything, it's done. It's ready to go. He doesn't have to do anything other than format it and, and hit publish. So I don't know. That to me is kind of like my contribution to the business to take that that off of his plate. Cause he's got, you know, he's trying to grow the business and I want him to grow the business. So you focus on growing the business. I will focus on getting you content, you know? So I, I think it's a win-win, even though it, it, it's one of those things that independent authors don't realize with covers and, and editing fees and all this stuff. Nine times out of 10, we're in the hole. Like we're not making money. We're, we're paying out of pocket. We're actually losing money. And again, it, it's not about the money. It's about telling the story. So we're okay with it. Well, in the, uh, in the realm of cinema, what are some of the noir films that you would say are defining films in both latter and modern day? Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Um, like you can't go talk the classics. You can't talk the classics without like the Maltese Falcon, the big sleep, Chinatown, touch of evil, kiss me deadly. Um, I'd even say Casablanca, even though that's not noir if you will, but it has noir elements. So I would say like all those classics, I mean, you can't talk any of that without Humphrey Bogart and most of his roles. And he just nailed it obviously, but there's, Oh God, there's so many that it's, it's, it's to, and it, I'm going to leave out so many by just narrowing it down to those few, but 
yeah, any of the any of the old bogey ones. Uh, Maltese Falcon for sure to me is huge. Um, Kiss Me Deadly is huge, and of course, I love Chinatown. I love Jack Nicholson. Uh, that that whole concept was to me was was noir in a more modern setting, if you will. It's, it's in color. It's not in black and white, you know. So it was a more modern setting that was still done very much hewing close to the formula. Like nothing works out well for any of those characters. It is very fatalistic, nihilistic. That was more uh, done right in a more modern setting. Any of the more modern ones? Like, what do you think about, um, I don't know, I think you would consider it noir, Basic Instinct? Oh, for sure. Basic Instinct, L.A. Confidential, Romeo is Bleeding, Blade Runner, uh, Usual Suspects, Dark City, Seven, uh, Drive, um, Memento. Memento was great. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, Brick. No. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Okay, so Brick came out 10, 15 years ago. It was Ryan Johnson back before he was Ryan Johnson, before he did Knives Out, before he was part of Star Wars. It was Ryan Johnson. I think it was his first film. It's noir in a high school setting. Okay. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he just kills it. The dude just freaking kills it. And it is, it hews very much to the old classic noirs. You have a femme fatale. You have that hard-boiled dialogue, you've got this mystery that keeps getting bigger and bigger, and he gets drawn into it. If you if you like noir, uh, that is a great movie to check out, even though it's relatively, it, it is, it's a modern noir, and you would think that the high school setting would not be conducive to good noir telling, but Ryan Johnson makes it work. It's incredible. So I'm going to admit something that probably will piss people off, but I liked 2049 better than I liked the original Blade Runner. So, yeah. Um, and I think it's because it was directed by Denis Villeneuve, because that guy is a yes, genius. He is a mastermind. And so, yeah, I, I can't lie. I saw that in the theaters like eight times. Yeah, I it saw it out. three times. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I could not stop going. Yeah. Yeah, so I and I, I would it. point to that one too, <laughs> and I own it too. Yeah, and I would I would point to that one as noir too. It's, it's again, it's very nihilistic, it's, tech noir. You know, that's very yes, yeah, very much tech noir, and I and I love it, and I, and I love Ryan Gosling's character in it because that to me is the is the embodiment of kind of the classic noir archetype. He's stoic, he's silent, he doesn't talk a lot. But you can tell there's always something going on in his head. There's always like these deep currents in his mind. And it's like it takes that scene where he's 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 finding out if the memory he has is real or not or was experienced by a real person. And then he just loses his shit. And it's and that is so cool because it's like all those emotions that he's been repressing come boiling out in this like amazing scene of acting that Ryan Gosling just nails, you know. So, yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And it's not like he's this. um bloviating badass you know but but when it comes down to it do not fuck with him because oh absolutely yeah <laughs> the first scene when he's going at it with that i forget what that dude's name is that monster just wow yeah. well and it's it, 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 near the end as harrison ford kind of is running he's he's trying to escape he runs through the door and, and ryan gosling's character K, he just runs through the fucking wall like he just bursts through this like stone wall like it's nothing you know it is it's just cool it's like yeah there's He's not always kicking ass, but when he does, it's it's amazing. It's, it's yeah, it's pretty incredible. Well, what would you say? You did say you're into horror movies as well, somewhat. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, big time. What would you say the best decade was for horror movies? Oh man, 
we're going to piss everybody off when we talk about this because there is there, no right answer. You know, to this. well, you know that the people that love the '80s are like in a cult, right? Like, oh yeah, <laughs> they will. Well, they will. Uh, what do you call it? Excommunicate you from the horror world if you say well, anything. For other. sure, yeah. <laughs> and so I got to be real careful what I say because if I want to release any horror stories, which I do, like I got to, I got to not fuck this up. Um, for me. <laughs> For me, it would don't be the pander 80s to the masses. I know, right? No, for me, it would be the eighties. That's when I was. That was when I, I mean, I was what ten? I was ten in nineteen eighty six. You know, and so you had all these. I mean, you had Halloween that were in the seventies, early eighties. You know, Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, I'm sorry, not Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, you know, you had uh, Chucky. All these different, these different cool character creations, right? Child's Play introduced us to Chucky. Uh, Nightmare. On Elm Street, you have Freddy Krueger, arguably one of the coolest, most fun horror movie villains of all time. And the dude can get you in your sleep. He doesn't need to stalk you when you're awake. He stalks you when you dream. How cool is that? You know, um, so I would say as far as creative villains and some of the most iconic horror villains ever, like late 70s, early 80s, for sure. Because I think that there was no Holmes Bard back then. I mean, you could get away with whatever you wanted to get away with. You wanted to show some guy getting an arrow jab through his throat, knock yourself out. You want full body nudity, knock yourself out, you know? And, and then in the nineties, they started kind of pandering towards the masses, if you will, by saying, Oh, well, people like horror movies and these young kids want to watch them. So now we're going to make them PG 13 and we're going to rob them of all of the things that used to make them cool. That used to make them kind of edgy, right? Cause edgy now is just edgy in the eighties. Now that's commonplace in the nineties. Everybody's doing that, you know? And so, I think the nineties because the media, the, the, the studios got involved so much. Now it's about profit. Now it's not about telling fun stories. You know, now it's not evil dead too. Now it's, you know, we're going to, we're going to strip these down and make these straight to video PG, PG 13 final destination number 27. You know, and it just, I don't know. I, I think it robbed it, the, the, the genre of a lot of its power, if you will. And so it was kind of cool to me that now we're going into, you know, the 2020, we're going to, you know, even, in, even through the 2010s, you had a lot of independent filmmakers kind of returning to their roots and, and making these great, great horror movies, whether they were redoing classics or their own individual creations. And I think this is kind of Renaissance now. And so modern horror, I think is starting to achieve what the eighties was initially achieving. And it's just kind of come full circle, but there was a time in between there where it kind of, kind of sucked. Well, uh, I'm really interested in hearing about the retro synth wave that you've talked about that you're into. I'm into uh deep, dark dubstep and hard wave, which is weird. Okay. Weird because I don't dance at all, but I listen to it while I'm driving, while I'm working out. Yep. Um, I just like the fact that you're using technology to create this ethereal sound that really affects you physically, like gets you going or kind of gets yeah. you in like a chill mood or yep. something like that. So what's the draw of that? It's funny you? you say that. It's funny you say that. Cause I love industrial music, EBM, synthwave, everything with a beat. I love it. Absolutely. I do not dance. I never danced. I never will dance. I, I, I absolutely despise all of that. Like it's Fellow like, you know, introvert. yeah, exactly. Right. But the music, <laughs> but the music resonates and I think it is because it is so emotional because it does make you like, if you're exercising, you're going to pump yourself up. If you're driving, if you're doing yard work, whatever, it does give you that energy. It's almost like it transmits right to your muscles and you're just go, go, go. So I get why people do dance to it. Um, for me, like you said, that something about that technology that it is inducing real emotion. Um, I find that kind of that it's very fascinating to me how you can take something that's digital and not real 
and yet it can induce real emotions, real feelings. It, it harkens back to real memories that you had. So I, I like that aspect of it. Uh, we're kind of crossing this, this, this bridge, if you will. I mean, yeah, violins, you know, all these classic instruments, woodwinds, so they're great. They're phenomenal. I love classical music. There's something intrinsically amazing how like, this was the first, you know, that was the first kind of structured music, if you will. And everything from there is based off of that, has roots in that. But I'm more fascinated in the stuff that isn't real, that, but we but we make it real. And so Synthwave, to me, you know, growing up as a child in the 80s, obviously you couldn't get away from it. You had Depeche Mode or Razor, mm. Alphaville, all these big, Enjoy big bands the dominated the airwaves. <laughs> exactly, right. And, and, you know, so you've got these cool artists now that are trying to emulate that same sound and that same feel um, with mostly real, like relatively good success. There's some bands out there that really do sound like, Hey, these guys could have been lifted right out of the eighties. They have just that, that kind of raw um, analog sound. If you want, it's amazing, but I don't know something about it just resonates. It always has, um, it puts me in a very interesting place and it definitely screams retro, right? There's even if it's modern technology, then most of these guys are doing it on computers now as opposed to synthesizers, but it, you can't tell the difference. It sounds like it's coming from synthesizers. There's something that just takes me back to my childhood. And it just, I don't know. I, I'm not usually very nostalgic. I don't, I don't do nostalgia. I'm not, a, I'm not a much of a nostalgic person, except when it comes to music and music kind of takes me back and it puts me in a different, like mind mindset, different emotional state, you know? So synthwave to me just kind of accommodates all of that. You could, you could, like you said, you can do it when you're exercising. You can listen to it when you're doing, when you're working out. You can yard work. You can do it when you're driving. Or synth wave is great when you're just chilling, when you're just laying down in bed at night or laying on the hammock under the stars. Or their synth wave can fit really anything that you're doing, and that that to me is impressive. I'm I'm really interested in the study of human consciousness, so I read a lot of philosophy of mind books and stuff like that. And I really am interested in technology affecting consciousness, like virtual reality, um, just the way tech just kind of inserts itself into our consciousness. I don't know if you've ever heard of Tale of Us. Have you ever heard of them? It's two guys and they're producers. They produce their own stuff. And I guess they're probably mixing their own stuff back and forth. You know, two guys, they do raves and whatnot, but they hook up with this group called Afterlife. So if you're ever on Instagram or YouTube, look up Afterlife. They are a group that basically facilitates the lighting and the special effects for uh, these raves. And I, and I mean, it is like, I can't even describe what these guys do with a full-length backdrop screen and these, uh, these animated bots that, that are synced up with the music. It's insane. Definitely check that you out. You should check out... You should check out a band called Purity Ring. Purity um, Ring. It's just it's it's just two two folks. One is uh, yeah. Once they produce her, he does all the music, and then the chick sings. She's got this ethereal kind of like almost angelic voice, if you will. But the way that Purity Ring operates is kind of the same way. It's 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 a big stage. Um, his music it's not traditional synthesizer. He has these hanging crystals that he, um, each one has a different tone. So he'll have like the backing track already playing and he hits these crystals with his drumsticks and they produce a different tone. They also produce light pulses and then the light pulses will kind of shoot out all across the stage. Like sometimes they sync up with the dress that she's wearing and they pulse across her body and stuff. And it's, it is incredible. Like their live shows are something to behold. Wow. 
Yeah. Well, so speaking of elevated consciousness, in your bio, you call yourself, I'll wait till you stop drinking. I don't want you to. Are you good? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, in your bio, you call yourself a whisper of cats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you saying that you have the same abilities as Farrah? Uh, so I wish. Um, I, I definitely have an animal affinity. Even people who are animals that are like, oh, they don't like anybody. Like, they're not going to like you. Those animals, like, love me in two seconds. I just have that. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I couldn't begin to describe it to you other than I think it's a – I think being an introvert, I think you kind of have a calmer personality, um, right? Because you're quieter. You're more reserved. And that animals don't like – a lot of animals don't like wild people. You know, so I think that that probably has something to do with it. But funny story, though. Um, so in my, in my book, there's a cat, this black cat called Licorice. She becomes kind of more important as the story goes along. Um, we have a black cat here that we adopted a couple of years ago. Uh, I can't remember what her initial name was. It was something god awful. So we, we renamed her Salem. You can't have a black cat without it being called Salem. I just that's just how I feel. And she was problematic. Um, she was kind of fighting with my other cat. She was destroying everything around the house. And I've never had a cat like this. I've always had very good luck with animals. But she was kind of this kind of wild child. And I was kept telling my daughter, like, honey, I think we're going to have to give her back, like, back to the pound. I, I just, like, she's tearing everything up. I, I can't have this. I can't have her fighting with our other cat. And so my daughter says, she was 11, I think, at the time. And she said, let me talk to her. Just let me talk to her. Dad, don't take her back yet. Let me talk to her. So she takes this cat into her room. And they're in there for, like, a couple hours. Um and I'm just like, okay, whatever I'm doing, dad stuff, you know, making dinner. I don't know, whatever I was doing. And they finally come out and she's got the cat in her arms and she says, okay, it's all better. You know, and I'm like, what do you mean? It's all better. She said, I talked to her. It's all better. Don't worry about it. Don't take her back. And I was like, okay, honey, you like patting her on the head. Okay, sweetie. You know, that's great. You know, and then no shit from that day on that cat has done a complete 180. She is like the best cat. She's still kind of wild, but she doesn't destroy anything. She just wants to play. She's super loving. She's at my heels like a dog constantly. She plays fetch. Like she's just this like completely different cat. And my daughter to this day, she won't tell me what, what she told the cat. I have no idea what she told her. I have no idea what they were in there talking about her. If she was in the strangler. I have no idea what happened in that room. All I know is that when she came out, that cat was completely different and has turned into such an amazing animal. So I kind of modeled Farrah after my daughter, honestly, in that regard. Yeah. She's got that, that intuitive emotional sense. Hmm. She does. It's pretty incredible. Like watching her with animals is incredible. Hmm. Well, kind of getting out of the, uh, the realm of your writing. Tell me a little bit about kayaking. Oh, love it. I've never done that before. That's why I'm always curious. I feel like I'll like dump myself over and drown being hung upside down. <laughs> <from it. laughs> Yeah, it's Utah, you know, for all its faults, Utah is very beautiful. It's if you love the outdoors in any capacity, Utah is definitely the place to be. I will always give it props for that. You've got mountains, streams, rivers, lakes, you know, high desert. You've got Moab, which is this great kind of desert, uh, rocky area for off-roading. Anything you want other than the ocean is can be found in Utah. Um and for me, it being being kind of introverted, I wanted a, a sport that would get me out of the house. So I'm not always on the treadmill. So I'm not always on the exercise bike. I wanted to exercise outdoors. Um, and I don't know, something about kayaking just spoke to me where you can take this craft, go out on the water. Um, we have a lake 
not too far from us called Kazi, where it's no motor vehicles allowed, right? You can have paddle boards, you can have kayaks. See, that swim. would be nice. I would, yeah. The lakes yeah. around here, you're liable to get run over by a speedboat. <laughs> right. And that's, yeah, you know, the lakes, yeah, good luck, you know, because you will get dumped out because you've got these big wakes from these boats. But this place is calm, it's quiet, it's very relaxing. And so uh, I love to read, obviously, as well. So I would kind of bring these books along with me, paddle around the lake for a while until I got tired, and then literally paddle out to the middle of the lake put the oar up, put my feet up and read a book. And the wind kind of takes you wherever it's going to take you. You're surrounded by this beautiful scenery. It's like, it's so quiet. It's so calm. And it's almost like this Zen state where you're just at, you know, you're in tune with nature, you're in tune with yourself and you're reading this book or you're just, just gazing up at the, at the, at the sky and you're just kind of losing yourself. It almost feels like you're weightless because you're on the water and so you've got that slight motion of the water. It's, it's, there's nothing else like it. It's incredible. Wow. See, see, I didn't even know that was possible. For some reason, I pictured in my head that you're constantly having to like balance yourself somehow within it, but no, no, the kayaks really do the work for you. Unless you're like doing like white water kayaking or something then you're, yeah, you're constantly fighting the elements and dodging rocks. But no, if you're on a calm surface, you, I, there's, there's no danger. I mean, I've never tipped over. I'll bring my books. I'll bring like my, my uh, headphones. Uh, I've never had an issue. Never dumped over once. Well, what about? Uh, I read something about you're trying to get a Harley. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, bought a motorcycle a few years ago. It was a V Star, just an entry level motorcycle, and just fell in love with the whole aesthetic. Once again, it's kind of a you can have motorcycle friends, you can be in a club, whatever. But again, riding on a motorcycle is very insular in, in nature. You're by yourself usually got your helmet on you know you got your headphones on and you're just it's just you and the machine and the road and there's something about experiencing these winding mountain roads back roads and trails and stuff on a motorcycle where you can literally look around you and you're not obstructed by anything there's no pillars there's no rear view mirror there's no dashboard it's it's you and the elements um again very good uh for Zen state for us introverts to just go and ride. And you can, you know, I mean, motorcycles sip fuel, so you can fill it up there. You're on there for hours and hours and you can just go wherever you want. And it is very conducive to like, if you, if you need to work out stuff in your head, then hop on a motorcycle, go, go ride. You'll figure it out. So were you driving uh, like a touring style bike yeah. or more of just a cruiser? Yeah, kind of a cruiser. Like I don't, I don't do cross rockets for me. It had saddlebags, you know, it was, it was designed for a long haul. It was designed for, for, so you, you had know, like, the, you had the radio and everything or no, that's the only thing it didn't have. And so that's when I talk like wanting a Harley, I want to upgrade to like a Harley where that's all built in. Um, you have the fair, those, the, the street glides. <laughs> yeah. You can do street glide or electric glide. Street King or um, yeah. There's yeah. Yeah, maybe so many freaking, you know, soft, like hardtails, softtails. They've got so many different models, but I want mine with the fairing. So it has the big kind of cowl on the front, which, which blocks the wind, you know, and you've got your speakers. Now, of course, now it's all like super technology where it's integrated Bluetooth. You've got Bluetooth headsets with like a microphone. So if you're riding with somebody, you can talk to each other. Like there's, you know, it's, it's all, it's all fancy now. My uh, stepdad, he, you know, he hasn't done it in a while. I don't think his knees allow him to do it anymore. But back in the day, he had a 2002, I think, Honda Goldwing, which are like Cadillacs. Those things ride so smooth. And I mean, like you were saying, the helmet with the uh, with the boom mic, him and his buddies would go from Texas to New York. Sometimes they'd cross the Canadian border, you know, probably can't do that now with COVID. But probably <laughs> back not. in the no. back in the day, you know, sounded like a lot of fun. But my boss, like he was a. 
he's a big Harley guy. And so, yeah, he, he and his wife will go on like week long trips on their bikes and they'll just go to all the national parks and see all these cool things. And again, they're seeing it from the back of a motorcycle where you can literally look around and see everything. You're not, there's nothing to block your view. So they're seeing almost unfiltered, you know? And so, yeah, it's, I want to get back into that. I, again, you know, you start out, I started out on a budget single father. I started out on a budget with this, with this V star. It's a kind of a cheaper bike, you know, but you get into the Harley world, you're, you're spending some serious cash and you can upgrade and personalize literally every inch of that bike. Have you ever been skydiving? Not yet, but I want to. I imagine you guys probably have a good drop zone in Utah because there's so much open. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually an airport. that's only a few miles from my house where they do it right from there. Nice. So, yeah. What do you and the uh, kids do together when it's family time? Uh, we do a lot of bike riding. We do a lot of like, I'll take them out kayaking. We all have, we you know they have several kayaks. And so we'll go kayaking. Um, my daughter, she's getting more into like archery. So we go, we, we shoot bows and arrows. She's also getting into guns. So we'll go shooting as a family, which I think is fun. Uh, obviously we're into movies. Um, we're into music. My kids love music. It's great. Um, and yeah, we go run around in the graveyard at night. We'll do water fights. Like it's just, I don't know, anything we can think of, we'll go do. It's I try to I try to make sure they have a, a mix of different hobbies that they're into. Well, as we uh, bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug? Social media, <laughs> upcoming projects? Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely say check out Monochrome Noir Part 3. That's coming out at the end of the month, uh, provided I get my cover, of course. Uh, <laughs> Monochrome Noir 4, we're aiming for a late uh, fall release, and then that will complete this particular series of stories. Then I will work on getting them on audio, which I think will be awesome. And then I would say check out Last Waltz. They're the publishing company I'm with. We have two anthologies coming out uh, later this year. Uh, we've got one in October. It's going to be kind of these uh, gothic horror stories, if you will, kind of these, not maybe, I mean, maybe Southern Gothic, but kind of more in the tale of old Dickens stories and Poe stories, you know, very much traditional old timey ghost stories, if you will. And then what I'm super excited about, we have a collection called Tales from the Monoverse. My publisher loved the concept of a black and white world so much that he was like, hey, let's submit this to an open, open publishing call and have other people submit stuff in a similar vein, but not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a detective story. It can be anything. And we'll, we'll call it like a, an adjacent universe, right? It's the next universe over us. So it's kind of our take on the multiverse, but it's going to be black and white stories from other genres, horror for sure. Um, science fiction. I'm, I'm submitting one myself and it'll be very much a kind of a cyberpunk uh, Blade Runner ish tale, which I'm super excited about. So that one will be coming out late fall as well. I would definitely urge people to check that out. We're going to have some awesome authors in there. I think some really cool stories. That sounds great. Yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, that's all I got. That's that's all you got. That's plenty to keep people busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you again for joining me on the show. It was great talking with you, and I look forward to your upcoming work and everything you just mentioned. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and follow the show on Instagram and YouTube. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Freedom and we can go as long as we want 